The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. That was an interesting passage. Some of that stuff there at the end there. What's he going to say about this one? Happy Father's Day to you all. Um, you're just kind of acknowledging there's some of those, those lines that we were reading, verse 2, right? Like, you're the most handsome of the sons of men. Like, what do we say about that? Or, you know, verse 8, your robes are full of fragrant myrrh, aloe, and then cassia. I mean, what is, what is cassia even? You know, and then even for Father's Day, verse 10 is like, forget your father's house. I mean, is that what we're going to talk about this morning? What exactly is Psalm, you know, 45 all about. And, you know, there's a little bit of a cultural gap here, you know, with Psalm 45 to a certain extent. Psalm 45, let me just say it like this, is it's a celebration song, a celebration poem for one of Israel's kings. You know, and for us living in America in the 21st century, we don't, you know, obviously have a king, but the British do, right? You know, the British. And just think about a few months ago with the coronation ceremony of King Charles, just think of all of the, the pomp and the circumstance. And I know so many people that stayed up till 2 a.m. or whatever time it was to be able to watch the coronation of King Charles, right? So there's cultures even today 
that have this kind of over-the-top, this robust, celebratory nature for their king or for their queen or for whoever might be in rulership. And I say that because even as you think about someone like King Charles, and I don't mean this as like a political statement or anything, there's an element where there's a bit of dissonance or disconnection between the person who's like in kingship and all of the celebration and all of like the praise that goes into that moment when someone like King Charles is being coronated. I mean, how many of you have seen the crown at all, right? I mean, the crown does not paint King Charles as a favorable character at all, right? So there's a little bit of a gap there between the person who holds the office and the celebration and the praise and all of the accolades that go along with it. But what if, what if there was a king that was deserving of this type of celebration, that was deserving of this type of praise? And might I just submit to you that Psalm 45 is pointing us in this direction, that there is a ruler that you and me all deeply long for, that you and me all deeply need, that deserves this type of affection, this type of celebration, this type of praise. And Psalm 45 is going to help us see that. Dane Ortland, in his small little but beautiful comment or devotion on the psalm, says that Psalm 45 speaks to that ideal ruler which every single human heart needs, but often doesn't necessarily know that they need. And that's exactly what I want to talk to you about this morning from Psalm 45, is why we should celebrate this king and who this king is. And I want to talk about this in two particular ways. Two reasons why, essentially. That this king has authority, and that this king, yes, he has authority, also has love. Authority and love. All right, so let's dive in. Verse 1 here. The text reads, Psalm 45, My heart overflows. And even in that first, those first few uh, words there, that language of overflowing, Calvin in his commentary on this psalm points out that that word overflows is like the same word for like boiling over, like a pot boiling with water, just overfilling. That the psalmist is, is so exuberant, so excited with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. I kind of made light of that line just a moment ago, but what we're talking about here, verse 2, is pointing us to the fact that this king is a human king. You're the most handsome of the sons of men. It goes on, grace is poured upon your lips. Now, I was kind of thinking more about this line these past few days, just that idea that grace is poured upon this king's lips, that this king's speech, the words that come out of this king's mouth are filled with grace and kindness and gentleness. I mean, can you imagine someone with authority and rulership having speech that actually is tender and gracious? Oftentimes in our culture, someone with authority, well, their speech is not tender and gracious. Therefore, verse 2 finishes, therefore God has blessed you forever. So think about what we have on the table here. It's a human king with gracious speech, yet God, verse 2, has blessed this king, whoever this king is, forever. All right, so keep that in the back of your head. But look more as we as you see in verse 3, this idea of authority really rises to the surface in verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. 
The psalmist is helping us see, kind of give us this visual imagery of this king who has the, the, the power with the sword and is this mighty one full of splendor and majesty. In your majesty, verse 4, ride out victoriously. And I love this, for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. That here is a king who has both majesty, notice that twice in verse 3 and in verse 4, majesty appears. And this king rides out victoriously for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. And that pairing, to me, just seems so important. Both majesty and meekness going together. This is the kind of authority that this king has. And then verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. That again, this kind of speaks to the conquering nature of this king. This king who has all majesty and authority, who rides out for this cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness, and who has arrows that go into the, the heart of his enemies. That no one can stand in the way of this king, and the peoples fall under you. Verse 6 is going to go on to describe how this king rules with a scepter. Kind of imagine, you know, the, kind of that medieval picture maybe, if you will, of, of that staff, of that rod. Kind of the symbol of authority that this king has. And this king has all this authority, has this power to, to rule. And that people are invited to submit to this king. St. Augustine on his kind of sermon or, or commentary on this psalm talks about how we actually don't really like this idea of authority all that much. There's something within the human condition that, wanna, that often wants to push back against the idea of, of God having authority. He talks about how we often are kind of like this crooked sort of stick. And we're this crooked stick because we're all kind of bent and sin has gotten the best of us. And we're all sort of wayward. And we're this fragile crooked stick trying to bang our, our, our will, our agenda onto the firm stone and foundation that is God. Trying to have our authority come upon God's authority. But this text, this psalm, is inviting us to see that we need to have that flipped, if you will. That we need to see that this king is this one that has authority over the people's lives. That this king has this majesty and that rides out for these causes of truth and meekness and righteousness. And that he is the one, this king, who rules with a scepter. And I mentioned that in our cultural moment, we don't like this idea of authority. Right? And this isn't anything new, right? This isn't just something in our cultural moment. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Where humans, seeing what is right in their own eyes, want to determine what is good for themselves. This problem with authority goes back to the first pages of the Bible. And it has ripple effects all throughout, even into our own cultural moment. Philosopher Thomas Nagel writes this, on this subject, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. Like, I actually don't want a God. And am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this, note this phrase, this cosmic authority problem 
is not a rare condition, and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. We have a cosmic authority problem, if we're honest, or what D.A. Carson calls the problem of de-godding God, wanting to place ourselves on top of or ahead of God. And while this has started all the way in Genesis 3, it just we see the ripple effect throughout human history. There's a story about even in the, in, throughout church history during the time of the Crusades, that as people were going out to battle in the, quote, name of God, that as they were going out to battle, they would often want to get baptized. And one of the things that they would do is they would go out riding into the Crusades, that as they were being baptized, they would lift their swords above the water, going into the water, as if to say, God, I want to submit to your authority, except for in this part. I'm going to leave this part out of the water. Or someone like Thomas Jefferson, who cut up portions of the Bible that he did not find that aligned with what he wanted or with what he thought was good for him. And I appreciate the honesty in that. Sometimes we, we wouldn't necessarily like physically cut up our Bible, but there's elements where we oftentimes kind of wish we could do that, Right? Again, it's that cosmic authority problem. It's that de-godding of God. But I don't want you to just think that our sort of angst or resistance to authority is just something that's just out there. That's something that's just out there in the world. If we're honest, it's inside our own hearts. It's inside our own lives, even as followers of Jesus. You know, and it starts actually at a very early age, if we're honest, right? This isn't something that we have to be taught Resisting authority is not something that we have to just learn or be trained in. You know, for example, let me just kind of illustrate this for a little bit. A few months ago, my wife and I, we went to Nebraska Furniture Mart, which that was an experience in and of itself. I mean, the decision fatigue was just off the charts for me, right? So we, we wanted to get a new couch, and we walk in there overwhelmed, for one, and so they, they, they're showing us all these different couches, they're showing us all these different options, and we, you know, we're kind of figuring out, okay, what's the exact one we really, really want? And then the guy shows us like all these different like fabric colors, and then just more decisions that you have to make, and like, what kind of white do you want? What kind of gray do you want? And you're like, I don't know, I just want a couch at this point. And so finally we, we got a couch, we more or less kind of had it like custom made or, or whatever, and so we thought we were getting like a gray-ish sort of couch, and so we had to wait like two or three months for the couch to finally arrive at our house. And when we got the couch, it was a little more white than we were hoping for. And so we have four kids and a dog, by the way, like four little kids, right? So we've been like in semi-panic mode the past couple months. Anytime our kids come waltzing around the couch, it's almost like an artifact in our home at this point. Like, <laughs> just look at the couch, but don't sit on it, right? You can sit on the floor. But a couple weeks ago, our two-year-old, right? So our two-year-old little Adia, she's like the cutest thing ever. She's at that age where, you know, you're so cute, you can almost do whatever you want and get away with it kind of age, right? And so she comes in after having like a snack or something, and her hands are just filthy dirty, like just crumbs and jelly and whatever on her hands. She's coming to the living room, and me and Shai, my wife, are sitting there and going like this panic is coming over her face as she's approaching the couch. And Shai goes, Adia, don't put your hands on the couch. You gotta go back to the kitchen and get a wipe. Don't put your hands on the couch. And she's like looking at my wife and kind of looking at the couch and <laughs> there's that tense moment. 
And she approaches the couch, and instead of putting her hands on the couch, because she was told, don't put your hands on the couch, she puts her elbows <laughs> on the couch like this, and then just looks at us. <laughs> like, what are you going to do, Mom? And it's like, you know those moments when you're parenting, and you're like, you're not supposed to laugh, but then you laugh? That was one of those. But my, the, the point of sharing that is because I don't have to train my two-year-old to, like, rub up against authority, right? There's something innate within us that resists authority, as cute as that might be. You know, and even kind of zooming out a little bit to our own lives here, you know, not as two-year-olds, but as adults, there's moments where I kind of think about it like this. You know, when you might have someone come over to your house and you're kind of trying to clean up the house to make it look good and try to, you know, you want to be hospitable and that's all, you know, it's a good thing. One of like the tricks that sometimes we often do is like we have a room in our house that's basically like just get everything in that room and like, you know, hope for the best and then the rest of the house will look okay, right? And it's like, as people come over, it's like, don't go in that room because that's like the room where we're trying to hide everything, right? You guys laugh because you do this yourself, right? <laughs> but there's an element to that where I think about our relationship with God and authority with God where we sometimes have like this compartmentalized way of thinking about like if there's this room, so to speak, where God, don't touch that area. We don't want your, we, I don't want your authority to speak into that little room of my life. And there's a little bit of faulty way of thinking in that. I mean, not only are we supposed to live our whole life before God, but to really submit to the authority of God is to say there's not these like little sections of our lives that we can compartmentalize and put off to the side as if God can't come in there. No, a humble posture, a humble response to the authority of God is to say, no, all of my life is lived before you. All of my life belongs to you. And you know what actually makes coming under authority something you want to do? Not just brute force, not just brute authority, but actually love. Love. That leads me to my second point. This, this king is the king who loves. And as you kind of look through, and you may, as we, we heard this psalm read, the, the second half or so has all of this sort of bridal imagery, all of this wedding kind of ceremonial imagery, speaking to how this king is a king who, yes, has all this majesty, has all this authority, has this scepter, but this king demonstrates his love to his bride, especially verse 11. I really want to highlight verse 11 where it says, and the king will desire your beauty. Notice how the authority of this king is used in such a way to bring to life, to, to, to beautify, if you will, the bride that is to, to become his wife. Verse 11 continues, since he is your Lord, bow to him. Even verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber. This is speaking to the fact that even when, when this bride, this, this lady is behind closed doors, because of the king's authority, because of the king's love, she is still beautiful. And then verse 15, with joy and gladness, they are led along. Speaking to the fact that because of this king's authority and because of this king's love, there's this desire to want to follow with joy and gladness. They are led before the king. But who is this king? I've kind of given some hints along and maybe you kind of already know the answer, but think about this for a moment. Who is this king 
that this Psalm 45 is talking about, that demonstrates this sort of love. Some of you might be wondering, I mean, what's cassia? Can we go back, what's cassia? Cassia is just, for inquiring minds, is like a cinnamon spice. So there's that free bit of information for you. But who is this king? More, more important question. Is this king David? I mean, David was one who ruled with authority. David was one who had military strength and conquest and subdued the enemies of God. David is the one who really established for really the first time Israel as a nation. But if you know the story of David, David also has his own issues. He actually abuses his own authority. Think about the story of David and Bathsheba. So ultimately, this psalm cannot be talking specifically about David. But perhaps this psalm is talking about Solomon. You know, actually, Calvin, in his writing on this psalm, actually, I think rightly, thinks that the original context of Psalm 45 speaks to Solomon himself. There's actually a wordplay in the heading of Psalm 45, right before verse 1 in your Bibles, that's actually there in the text, where there's a wordplay on the name Solomon. So perhaps this Psalm 45 is speaking about Solomon. It's a love song. Solomon is a, is a man of wisdom. But again, if you know the story of Solomon, you know his life starts off fairly well and ends with tragic consequences because of his own abuse of authority and his own twisting of what love really is. And if we were to keep excuse me, going down the line of kings in Israel's history, there's not very many bright spots after that. Right? Maybe a few. Josiah, Hezekiah, maybe. But there's not a whole lot to find favorable throughout Israel's history with regards to Israel's king. So who is this, this psalm actually talking about? Now, at this point, you're probably going, Kate, we know the answer. We know how this thing goes. You know, you're going to talk about Jesus at some point. But, but slow down with me for a second. Right? Let's think about how we really know that. I didn't mention earlier, as I was working through the text, I didn't really talk about a ton, verses 6 and 7. I want to actually come back and double-click on those two, two lines. Because ultimately, we know this psalm isn't ultimately talking about any of Israel's kings, but someone much greater. But look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, up until verse 6, so one, verses 1 through 5, the psalmist, from by all indications, has been talking about and talking to a human king. That's where, you know, you're the, the, the most handsome of the sons of men, verse 2. But then all of a sudden, without skipping a beat, verse 6, the, 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 the speaking is towards God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter, and by the way, that word scepter is the same word for rod found in, ver, in, in Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So already we're seeing some hints there that this king is not just a human Israelite king, but someone much more. But then verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now pay attention to the end of verse 7. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Now, question, who is the you of verse 7? We'll just go right back up to verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then in verse 7, 
Therefore, your God, your God has anointed you. God is anointing God in verses 6 and 7. Do you see that? Augustine says, quote, God was anointed by God. It's speaking on this verse. Now, don't you see what's happening here? Psalm 45 itself, right there in your Old Testament, right there in your Hebrew Bible, has robust Trinitarian theology in verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God has anointed you. God has anointed God. And that word anointed is the word Messiah, Mashiach. God has Messiahed you. You could read that, that line there. So don't let, quick sidebar here, don't let anyone tell you that the doctrine of the Trinity is some kind of invention that came hundreds of years later. No, right here in your Old Testament, we have a, a depiction of God that is one, yet more than one. God was anointed by God. Now, perhaps, again, some of you might see where this whole thing is, is headed. And just like, you know, Pastor Justin a couple weeks ago took us to the Gospels to see how light and truth come from Jesus, and just like how Mike Kresnick last week took us to Romans 8 to help us see and understand how to read Psalm 44, I want us to do something very similar. Take us to the New Testament to help us understand how we are to read Psalm 45 as Christians. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip over to the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, starting right there at the beginning of the chapter. And I want us to see something that I found, just to me, is really exciting. And this is just a ton of fun at this point. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Let me just read a few verses here. You'll kind of see where this is going. Hebrews 1 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, kind of skip down a little bit to verse 8. And let's pick it up in verse 8. The text reads this. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Do those words sound familiar to you? Do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing? He is quoting verbatim the text of Psalm 45. This is what C.S. Lewis referred to as the second meanings in the Psalms and kind of C.S. Lewis's reflection. That there is a, yes, this psalm was probably talking about Solomon originally, but this psalm is talking about someone so much greater, someone so much more than King Solomon, none other than Jesus Christ himself. Augustine says this, the name of Christ could not be more clearly expressed than by his being called God the Anointed. And don't you see Psalm 45 is a meditation on the authority and on the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is how we're meant to read and think about and dwell upon Psalm 45. 
And as we kind of wind down here, what I want to do is just kind of reflect then both on the authority of Jesus and on the love of Jesus. You know, Psalm 45 talks about the arrows of the king go into the heart of the, the king's enemies. And in many ways, that's exactly what we see in Jesus Christ, that he defeated sin and Satan and death, that the proverbial arrow goes into death itself, and Jesus defeats death by taking on death upon him own self. But the Bible also tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. Now, another way to think about this is that Jesus himself took on the arrow of death for you and for me. And that the way that Jesus, who has all authority, uses his authority is not to lord it over people, not to abuse that authority by just manipulating and controlling people. No, Jesus uses his authority to take on the arrow of death into his own being that his people might have life and life everlasting. Jeremy Treat says this, about Jesus' authority, Jesus reveals his kingship not by coming down from the cross to save himself, but by staying on the cross to save others. Jesus reigns or has authority by saving, and he saves by giving his life. And so we see that Jesus himself uses his authority for the benefit, for the, for the, for the service of for people like you and for me. But what about Jesus' love? Again, Jesus is, the idea that Jesus loves us can become so sentimental and we can come sort of stale at times. So let me just, if I can, just tell a quick little story here. And let me throw this picture up of someone you probably don't recognize. But if you do, you know, kudos to you. But this is a picture of Anna Bartlett Warner, born in 1827 uh, and died in 1950. And she was one of two sisters, her si sister Susan, and they spent much of their childhood and adulthood just telling a bunch of stories and writing a bunch of stories. And one day when they were kind of, they kind of grew up in a poor family and their dad died at a very early age. And so they had some financial struggles as a family. But one thing that they did to kind of keep themselves just from, you know, just kind of going crazy on one hand, but just to have some sort of sense of fulfillment was to write a bunch of different kind of children's stories. And at one point, they were writing this story together. There was a scene in, in one of their stories where there was a doctor coming to the bedside of a young, sick boy. And they wanted to insert a song into this particular scene of this particular story. And they were kind of, you know, mulling over what exactly should we write in this moment? What story should we have? And the song that they insert into this moment goes something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, for they are weak, but he is strong. Anna Bartlett Warner was the one who inserted that story into, or inserted that song into her story. And that idea that Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells us so, that, that is a truth that if you've grown up in church, I mean, how many times have you heard that? How many times have you heard, even from like, probably the Bible that you might read with your kids, the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? The never giving up, never stopping, always, the always and forever love, right? That the love of Christ is something that we talk about all the time, and that's also why it can be somewhat dangerous. Because it can become sentimental. It can become stale to a certain degree. But what can sort of reawaken us to the fact that Christ loves his church, loves his bride, loves you and me? 
What can help us ground that reality of Christ's love for, for his people that isn't sentimental, that isn't stale, that's actually fresh and alive? Well, think about it like this. Think about this question. How are we to read all of this kind of bridal and, and wedding imagery in this psalm? How are we to understand what Psalm 45 is saying about how this king loves his bride, how this king loves his queen? I mean, again, originally this was probably, again, talking about King Solomon himself. But throughout church history, people who have come way before us understood that this psalm is speaking about Jesus' love for the church. Augustine says this, For this psalm is sung of the sacred marriage feast, of the bridegroom and the bride, of the king and his people, of the Savior and those who are saved. See, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the scriptures, the idea of, of Christ loving his bride, Christ and the church, has been this sort of metaphor, this image of how the Bible talks about how Jesus loves his people. This covenantal, unbreaking, always and forever love. And I find that this, this to be true, that the idea, the truth that Jesus loves his people is one of the hardest truths for people to really grasp and truly believe and understand. It's again, so sentimental, it's something that's always talked about. Eugene Peterson, throughout his writings, would talk about the most difficult thing that he encountered throughout his pastoral ministry was convincing people or helping people see that Christ really loves them unconditionally. Like what would truly happen in your life if you really believed that Christ loves you unconditionally. That Christ loves his church unconditionally. How freeing would that be? Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes that it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I no longer live for myself, but I live because Christ died and gave himself for me. Paul was someone who deeply understood this fact. Paul understood the reality that Christ died for him, used his authority to die for him, and in turn has demonstrated his love for someone like Paul. And that can be true for you and for me today. That we can be the kinds of people that really receive, really recognize Jesus' love for his church and for you and for me individually. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and writers, says this, to be loved but, by, but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot, by, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. Friends, this is the king that you and me long for. See, if you just have a king who has authority, that leads to abuse, that leads to hurt, that leads to manipulation. If you just have a king that loves, it easily becomes sentimental and stale. But in and through the person of Jesus Christ, we have this perfect fulfillment of both authority and love coming together in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And as we think about this text, think again with me, verse 11. 
For this king will desire your beauty. This king uses his authority for his people's good. Like, don't you see that when you come under the authority of this king, you're not coming under the authority of a tyrant or someone who's manipulative or someone who's going to kind of lead your life astray. No, you're coming under the authority of one who desires the beauty, the flourishing, the good of his people. But then that last half of verse 11, therefore bow to him. There's the response for you and for me. Again, if we're honest, there's probably portions of our lives where there's like a room set aside where we just don't want the authority of, of God to come into that moment or that place. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your work or a particular relationship. But what would it look like for you this morning to bow the knee before the loving authority of King Jesus? To live your whole life before the face of God. To trust, to deeply believe that he desires your beauty and your flourishing and that his authority is for your good and for your joy. Friends, this is the only free way to live. This is the only way to live. To see the beauty of King Jesus, the beauty and the goodness of his authority, and to trust. To trust his finished work and to trust his authority in your life and in my life. So Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the beauty of King Jesus. We thank you for your authority in our lives and for your love that you've demonstrated to each and every one of us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we continue to worship you, I pray that you would help instill in each of our own minds and hearts just a deep gratitude and a great appreciation for your rule over us. That you are a king who loves, you are a king that is for us, and may we humbly bow the knee before you. Thank you that you are for us and not against us. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.